So last week we uh, started this uh, new series uh, from this small book that we just read called the book of Jude. And we learned last week who Jude is. Uh, Jude is a brother of Jesus. Uh, we don't often think about Jesus' life growing up. Uh, but the person writing this book grew up every single day. Uh, watching Jesus, doing life with Jesus, going to the synagogue with Jesus, eating family meals, uh, doing family chores, uh, learning and discussing the, the Torah uh, around the table. And somewhere along the line, it was um, most certainly because in our Gospels, the only hint that we have of Jesus' brothers was one that they, they, they didn't accept him as the Messiah uh, until they saw him resurrected. And when they saw their, res their brother resurrected uh, from the dead, um, Jude, and later we'll look at James, uh, in the remainder of the summer, they go from, man, this is my amazing, amazing brother to, this is my Lord. This is the Lord of the universe. The Lord of the story. So last week uh, we, we saw in verse 3 just how... Jude was really excited to, to, to write about the salvation that, that we have in Christ, but then he says he has to lay that aside because something far more urgent uh, ha, has come up. And the, the urgent thing that Jude addresses in verse 4 uh, when he says certain individuals. Again, he does not name these individuals, uh, but he, he lets them know that these certain individuals, they have secretly crept in. And using this language of, of secretly creeping in uh, would, would draw his audience uh, back to the Bible that, that they know so well, the part of the Bible in Genesis 3, where you have a character who sneaks in and creeps in, uh, the snake. And we know the rest of that story, most of us. Uh, when that snake uh, crept in the garden, he did it for the purpose to deceive uh, by twisting God's clear spoken word to Adam and Eve. And we know the rest of that story. Uh, they were deceived. Uh, they sinned. And this brought about the undoing of Adam and Eve. It severed their relationship with God. And it tragically brought about the undoing of all of God's creation. And Jude is sounding uh, the alarm with, with, with this kind of language uh, to say it's creeping in. Um, and, and you need to wake up. And Jude is too telling them it's, it's the same old game. Uh, verse 4, he says these certain individuals are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. That's literally how it reads. Uh, to per, to per, pervert something is to, is to twist it. And, and you can take something that's true and just even twist it a little bit uh, and, and by doing that, you can pervert it. And that's what these people are doing. That's, in fact, they've, they've done it with the core tenet of, of, of maybe the faith, uh, the core tenet of, of God's character, uh, his grace. Um, I, mean, I mean, grace is, is just so at the heart of God. And it's, it's grace that, that caused God to create the world in the first place. It's, it's grace that that brought about salvation. God's heart just oozes grace. His, his relationship with us oozes grace. The gospel is grace, which is why we call it gospel. And, it, and it's all more than just words and feelings, too. It's, uh, it's Christ crucified. It's that, it's that kind of grace. And so they take this core tenet and they exploit it, they abuse it by just twisting it a little bit. Um, 
And basically what they're doing is they're saying because of grace, uh, it doesn't matter then what we say, it doesn't matter how we live, it doesn't matter what we think. And then Jude uh, tells them what all of this is rooted in, and it's at the end of verse 4. If you look there, um, what's behind all this is these are people that deny Jesus as Lord. And again, that's just like the snake in the garden. Um, they insist on being their own masters. They insist on telling God who God is. They insist on twisting God's word according to their likes and preferences. Uh, it's, it's having God on, on, on my terms. By the way, we absolutely love babies, don't we? <laughs> we do. <laughs> so, but uh, I, will, I, I will admit that that's very helpful for me. Um, <laughs> some say I have ADD, I don't know. But anyway. So anyway, uh, it, it's having God on our terms. It's, it's, it's the God that I get to create. It's, it's, it's me fashioning God according to, to my likeness. It's, it's me conforming God to my world, to my life, to my thoughts, to my values. So do you see why this could be so perverse? Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, atheist, was asked uh, why he disbelieved in God, why he was an atheist. And I thought his answer was very interesting. This is what he said. He said, well, I don't want anyone to tell me how to live. I don't want to, tell, I don't want to have anyone in my life who tells me what I need to do. And, I mean, that's essentially what, what, what Jude is saying about these people. Uh, they're, they're people that don't want to have any kind of authority in their life. They, they insist on being the authority. And... And that's exactly what's at, heart, at the heart of these certain individuals. They don't want anyone telling them how to live. They don't want anyone tell, telling them how to think. But here's where they're different than, than Sartre. Sartre at least had the integrity to say, well, I guess this makes me an atheist. And, and, of course, Sartre would, would say, he does say, he, he thinks Christ, he thinks the church is a joke. But in that, he's not even the slightest threat uh, to the church because a person like that has zero desire to pervert God, to per pervert God's grace, his, his word to serve themselves. And I think this is what makes these certain individuals so dangerous is they insist that they belong to Christ, that they belong to his church, but it's going to be on their terms. It's going to be according to their likes and their preferences and their views and their beliefs where they get to remain the authority, which is why their whole game is about perverting. Perverting God, perverting his word, his gospel, his kingdom, his church. Which is why Jude is writing this letter, which is why he's really dropping this bomb on the church. When he says, church, there's, there, there's something that's... Uh, within you that's threatening you. And again, within, it's, it, it, it's not the culture around you. It's, 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 it's not the, the politics uh, or, or anything like that. It's, 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 it's in you. And this is why Jude's main point in this whole letter is in verse 3 when he says, church, you need to contend. And that word in Greek is agonizomai, where we get the word agony and agony. 
agonizing. Uh, this is what the church, the true church does. It contends for the true faith. And next week, we'll uh, look a little bit more at what this contending involves, uh, what it looks like, how we are to do it. But this week, we're going to look more um, in our text today, which is verses 5 to 16. <laughs> Uh, here Jude wants to still further define who these certain individuals are. And I don't think it's so much just to expose them, but I think Jude, what he is going for in these verses, verses 5 to 16, is he's, he's trying to give the church the skills to identify these kind of people. He, he wants to give them a biblical lens uh, by which they can now discern for themselves who these certain individuals are. And so in these verses, um, Jude provides a profile of these people. In verse 8, he says, These ungodly people who defile their bodies, they reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And then an example of how they blaspheme or why they blaspheme is in verse 10. He says, These people... Again, these certain individuals, they blaspheme or slander anything that they don't understand. And then verse 12, you have the same thing. These people, these certain individuals, uh, he, he more or less says they're, they're, they're downers at your gatherings. They're, they're in it for themselves. They're lightweights. They, they have no roots. They have no convictions. And therefore, they're hollow and they're spiritually dead. In verse 16, again, these people, these certain individuals, he says they're, they're, they're critics, they're cynics, they're selfish. They need to broadcast their self-importance uh, to everybody. Do you know anyone like this? Are you this? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you that because I had to ask myself these questions this week as I'm studying the text. Like, does this describe who I am? And I can say that there are aspects of this that are convicting to me. And more than anything, in light of the role that I'm in, not only uh, for me and my life, uh, who I am, but then also this church, does, does this describe our church? Now Jude knows that any lens that he uh, would, would give to the church where they could identify such people, it has to be the lens through the text, uh, the Bible. And so when I come to verses 5 to 16, the whole thing that, that is our text for today, um, this is classic Jewish midrash. Uh, in fact, my Jewish friends, I've gotten to know... Uh, uh, many as I've traveled to Israel and I've developed friendships and I've learned through these friendships uh, with some of my Jewish friends that um, some of them are very curious about the New Testament. Some of them have read the New Testament um, and, and they know the places where our New Testament is such a Jewish book. And the books that they are the most comfortable in, the books that they love the most are first of all the first two Gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark. And then their next two favorite books are written by the brothers of Jesus, the book of James and the book of Jude. They think this book is beautiful. Uh, because we look at it and it's just like, what is he talking about here? Uh, but, but, but it's Jewish midrash. It's, it's something that, uh, going already back to the time of Jesus, uh, 
Jews are doing midrash already as little kids. Now remember, this, this is a world that, that doesn't have TV. It doesn't have social media. It doesn't have sports. doesn't have movies, music. doesn't have much of that. And, and so th- this book and learning it and studying it and knowing it uh, became all of that to them. And this is why they're seeped in the Bible, why, why they learn it from cover to cover. And, and as they're learning it, what they're doing with it is they're constantly trying to make sense of the text through other texts of Scripture. Uh, making sense of this story through other stories. And, and, and they're trying to make sense of their life through the, through the text. And then they're trying to work the text into their life uh, where they're making applications. And, and so they can learn to not just know the text, but also to walk the text. And this whole process is what Jewish Midrash is. And I guess you could say it's almost the equivalent of a sermon, except this is where it's different. Uh, Midrash is done in community. Oftentimes it's done as families, among friends. It's, it can be done in the synagogue, uh, but it's mostly just done around the table as families or when you're walking together, when you got to walk uh, three days to a feast um, you're not just walking, but you're talking about this book. And remember, there's not a New Testament yet. So, so the Bible that they have, that they're doing Midrash, is what we call the Old Testament. You know, in seminary, I, I took a class called homiletics, which is teaching you how to preach. And I can basically sum up what they taught me in, in a sentence. Uh, three points in a poem. Uh, which, you can obviously tell, uh, that didn't go very far with me. Um, I never really bought into that idea of three points in a poem, but uh, Jude is essentially in five verses, verses five to 16, giving us two sermons. The first sermon or midrash is verses five to 10. And instead of giving us three points, he gives us three stories, biblical stories. And then he illustrates the biblical story with a popular story from the books that they were all reading at this time. And that's the same thing he does in the second sermon, uh, or Midrash, in verses 11 to 16. This is giving you the structure of the text. Um, But this time, instead of giving three biblical stories, he gives three biblical characters. And then he illustrates uh, his point there with another story from the books that they're reading at this time. And that's in verse 14. But let's start with verses 5 to 7. The three stories that Jude highlights, they're all from the Old Testament. And these stories, we might not even know what they are or if they're even in our Bibles. uh, But uh, these are stories that that people at this time, they're learning these things as kids. And as they got older, they're they're mining these stories for all their spiritual gold. The first story is in verse 5. It's about God's people when they're in the desert those 40 years. And if you know the story, I mean, every day they're witnessing miracles from God. Every day manna is being rained down from heaven. Every day water is coming out of the, the, the rocky desert. And yet when it's time for them to enter the promised land, they, they don't believe God. They don't trust him. That's the first story. The second story uh, in verse 6 is actually in Genesis 6. Um, It's a story about the angels who did not respect the place and the position and the authority that God gave them uh, in God's order. And they abused that and they exploited others uh, through the abuse of that authority. The third story 
Sodom and Gomorrah is a story of people who perverted God's design of sex. I've heard recently, even from teachers that, um, preachers, that, that the Bible's not that clear on, on sex. And I'm just like, while from cover to cover, the Bible is extremely clear on sex. And it, it, it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to creation. The last thing that God created in this world was, was sex. And he created a male and a female for sex, and where he designed for sex and intended for sex to be was in the confines, the covenant of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And that is from cover to cover. And so any, any form of sex outside of the covenant of marriage is, is deviating from God and and it, it can go from deviation to, to, to more and more perverse places. And that's the third story. So you have three stories here. One of unbelief, another of rebelling against authority, and another about sexual immorality. Do I need to illustrate these three realities from our world? I don't think so. The world that we live in is, is one of unbelief. This is an age of unbelief. We live in an age of anti-authority where, where authority is abused and where people are, are constantly bucking against it. We, we live in a hyper-sexed age that is saturated in sexual immorality in, in all kinds of ways. But yet remember... Why Jude highlights these three stories. It's not to expose the culture around them. It's not to talk about that world. It's not to talk about the politics of that world. These stories are here to further characterize these certain individuals who've crept in the church. These people are small group leaders, they're Sunday school teachers, they're pastors, they're teachers, they're elders. They're people who pervert God's grace, who say it doesn't matter how you think or how you live because God is so, so gracious, he understands you and accepts you. And I would, I, I, I would hope that this church would, would never, ever forget the gracious of God's grace to us. In fact, I, I, I want to be a church that we can't even talk about the grace of God with, with, without it uh, moving our hearts and, and possibly even bringing us to tears. Uh, like I said at the beginning, it's, it, it's so at the heart of God. It's so at the heart of his, his story. And then when you think about how he expresses his grace to us, it's, it's not just with words, but... Again, it comes to us through Christ crucified. It's grace upon grace. And that's why we call it gospel. It's, it, it just, it's just amazing. But Jesus did not die for us so we could just remain where we are. 
He came to the world to restore us, to redeem us. He came to heal us, to resurrect us. To be able to say on one side of the coin, I don't condemn you. But on the other side of the coin, in light of that, go and leave your life of sin. He wants us to leave our old life. He wants us to trust him for a new life. So Jude's second Midrash, 11 through 16, he now moves from stories to actual specific characters in the Bible. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And I don't even know if you know these names or know these stories, but I can tell you there's some heavy hitting going on just with these three names. Uh, Cain is the first person in the Bible to murder someone. But that's actually not why Cain is here. Cain is actually here because Cain received the very words of God. God instructed Cain. God spoke to Cain. God preached to Cain. And Cain had no regard for God's words. He had absolutely no fear of God in him, no fear of God's word, and this is why Cain becomes Cain. This is why Cain blatantly rebels against God. In Isaiah 66, it's the last chapter of of Isaiah's uh, great prophecy. This, these are the very words of God. God says, these are the ones that I look on with favor in whom I delight. It's the ones who are humble and contrite in spirit. The ones who tremble at my word. Do we tremble at this? Jude's second character is Balaam. Balaam is actually a true prophet of God. Uh, he actually preaches uh, the word of God to Israel. But then, someone offers Balaam a huge paycheck, a large amount of money to change his message from what God wanted him to say to what kings and important people pressured him to say. And eventually... Uh, Balaam succumbs to greed. He caves into the culture around him. He reverses his position and he begins to advise God's people to engage in sec sexual immorality and orgy uh, with the peoples around them. This is why Balaam actually became a verb in Jesus' day. Um, sometimes I like to say, lion has become a verb. Uh, when you watch the Detroit Lions long enough, you know every Sunday that the Lions are going to lion. You know, it, it, it's like, it's just going to happen, you know, and, and it gets hilarious, even though I have hope for this year. Uh, I know, I knew I'd get some. Um, and, and that's kind of what happens with this character, Balaam. Balaam now becomes a verb in, in the day of Jesus. Uh, Peter uses it in, in, in the second book of Peter. Revelation uh, Jesus actually uses this word. Uh, it, it, it's when a teacher um, will, will, will cave to money. And all of a sudden, instead of teaching the clear word of God because of money, because of greed, uh, they'll start preaching a word that, that people want to hear. Um, it, it's used of, of especially, this is how Jesus uses it in Revelation, um, who, it, 
teachers and, and, and preachers who succumb to the culture around them, name, namely in the area of sexual immorality, and they start advising and, and being permissive in this whole area. That's Balaam. That teaching's Balaam. That pastor is Balaam. It does make me wonder. I've thought about this this week. What would God, Jesus, say? That's Balaam, Rod. You're teaching there. That's Balaam. Or, 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 or what, what else would he, he, he say that's Balaam about in the church today? Where, where we've just so succumbed to the culture around us. And, and rather than and teaching each other God's word, um, we're just convoluting it. Jude's third character is Korah. This too is a story uh, in Numbers. Uh, Korah... Uh, is this personality who, who did not want to be under any kind of authority and therefore instigated a mutiny that included 250 of Israel's leaders to rise up against Moses and Aaron. And in fact, he used uh, Exodus 19, which is also quoted in second, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, which is a theme verse of this church, which this idea that we're a royal priesthood, a, a kingdom of priests. And, and, and Korah took that concept to level the whole playing field and to say, uh, look, Moses and Aaron, why are you guys so special? We're all priests. And while in, in, in one sense Korah is completely right, he's also not completely right because God, while he calls all of us priests, all of us pastors, he also sets up authority structures, a priesthood in the Old Testament, kings and prophets as well. In fact, even Jesus, uh, when you see his life and ministry, he, he respected the priesthood. He uh, respected the authority structures that God had put in place, but Korah is unhappy with any authority st structure, and so he rebels. If you know the rest of the story, the earth is split open and God judges them, much like a scene out of Lord of the Rings. So three, the, through these three characters, uh, you can see now how, how, how Jude is dialing in and he's sounding this warning to the church. He's saying, Cain is in your church. Balaam is in your church. Korah is in your church. <laughs> these guys, <laughs> these guys are those guys and those guys are these guys. He's trying to get them to see this. But I think even more than this, I think what he's, he, he's encouraging the church here, he, he's saying, church, guess what? If you're getting all dramatic about this, just stop, rest, take a deep breath, because this is nothing new. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. Cain, Balaam, Korah are part of every age. It's like Judas telling them, look, your parents, your grandparents, your great, 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 great grandparents, they all had these guys in their churches. It's all part of the deal. It's par for the course. These personalities are going to be there. I find this hugely reassuring uh, to just think there, there is nothing new today that, that we face. So when Dave Vandervelde last week gets up here, 
and how he expresses how it's actually easy right now to, to, to be in relationship with, with the world. <laughs> but it's really difficult to be in the church and, and to relate with Christians. Even friends and family, he, he, he listed, he said it's, it's become so hard. And, and Jude is here to say, yes, it, it is hard. Um, and that's part of the reason why I'm writing this letter, but you need to know it's nothing new. The only thing that is new is that it's your time to run the race. The baton is in our hands. And the same hurdles that uh, every age had to face as they run the race and to think about it, we're here today, right now. Because enough of them during every generation didn't throw in the towel. They didn't quit. Even though it was hard. And they contended for the faith, blood, sweat, and tears. May we be a generation that runs the race. That we could hand the baton off to the next generation when, when we're done. And I think even more than even all of this, I think Jude's still big, big point he's trying to make is that when this nothing new under the sun occurs, you need to know something. God will judge it. God is the judge. God will judge. You don't need to. I mean, look at verse 5. God judged. He destroyed the unbelieving Hebrews. Verse 6. God judges those angels pretty severely. Verse 7. God judges Sodom and Gomorrah with eternal fire. And then Judah's like, okay, if this isn't enough, let me just illustrate this with, 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 with an example from, from our contemporary li literature, this story of Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body. And we like come to this verse, and we're like, what's this? Like, that's not in our Bible. No, it's not in your Bible. Uh, but every Jew had this story on their bookshelf. I mean, it would be like Jude illustrating... Uh, this point by talking about orcs and hobbits and a white wizard or a place where it's winter but never Christmas until a great lion shows up. Um, it's, it's, it's the extra books that they're all reading. And what's Jude's point then in verses 7 to 8? His point here is that we don't need to condemn. That's God's job. God will rebuke them. Just like Cain, Balaam, Korah, they all received God's judgment. And see, Jude now then illustrates that, that second Midrash with a story about Enoch. And yeah, Enoch is in our Bible. I think it's one verse, uh, but... At this time, they, they had popular tales about Enoch. In fact, they had a whole book that was called the Book of Enoch. I mean, it would be much like our Pilgrim's Progress or Lord of the Rings. And so when Jude quotes uh, Enoch, the first book of Enoch in verse 14, it's almost like me taking a popular uh, movie scene uh, from Lord of the Rings and, and, and using that to illustrate my point. And... Now, all of a sudden, though, this becomes inspired because it's actually in the Word of God. In verse 14, this is what he quotes. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone 
and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all their defiant words that the ungodly have spoken against him. He has judged. He is judging. And he will judge. In our New Testament, um, a test uh, to this as well, um, it's all over our New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament con- concept. In fact, I do wonder, do we talk about God's justice and him being a judge as much as we talk about his mercy and his grace? I, I, because they're both equally within God. But I'll tell you what blows me away. Jude tells us who's going to bring this judgment in verse 5. It's the Lord. This is where our text starts. It says, though you, you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later he judged them. He destroyed those who did not believe. And I think we're all like, yeah, of course it's the Lord. But I find this incredibly fascinating. The oldest manuscripts that we have of, of this book that we call Jude, or this letter, don't say the Lord. This is how it reads. Though you already all know this, I want to remind you that Jesus, Jesus, it's not even Christ, it's Jesus. Jesus at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And then you go to people like Tertullian and and Clement who are commenting on this letter in the second century and they're saying, it's Jesus. It means that Jesus is all over this whole book. And think about who's claiming this to be Jesus, who's calling him not even just Messiah, he's calling him Lord, he's calling him Yahweh. It's his brother. A brother who he may have shared a bedroom with, or they did family chores together, they ate family meals, they went to synagogue. His brother's claiming this. And think about that deliverance from Egypt. I mean, think about this whole story of Exodus, of, of, of God literally uh, parting the sea. Who parted the sea? Jesus. Of God walking them through those parted waters. Who's leading them? It's Jesus. Uh, the one who shows up uh, in a cloud, a pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. But this is where you have to ask, who's in that cloud? Jude tells us it's Jesus. And even when that Korah mutiny happened, who, who split open the earth? Who, who destroyed Korah and all his rebels? It's Jesus. And so Jesus isn't just the deliverer uh, in, in all of these stories. Jesus is, is also the judge in all these stories. And here's the deal. Jesus doesn't change. So church, we can be at ease. It's not ours to judge. 
we can just lay it down knowing that Jesus will do it. And he's going to be the one who, in verse 14, he will be the one who's coming with the thousands upon thousands of holy ones to judge everyone. I mean, thoughts like this abound in our New Testament. Like Acts 17, when Paul is preaching, he says, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. And why, they, why should they repent? Because what Paul says next, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising this man from the dead. <laughs> and Revelation uh, describes that day. In Revelation 19, uh, John, uh, Jesus' disciple, writing this, he got this vision, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. He's not coming on a donkey this time. He's coming on a white horse. And then John says, and he comes in righteousness, he comes to judge and to make war. In another place uh, in Revelation, it talks about how this day is going to be so dreadful that people are literally going to be trying to dig holes in the ground or, or find a cave by which they can hide into because it's going to be the most terrifying moment in history. And what are we to do? Well, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to where you are kept. Verse 6 says, describes those who are kept in darkness by Christ. Verse 1 describes those who are kept for Christ. By Christ. Where are you kept right now? Are you kept for Christ and by Christ? Or are you kept for darkness? Have you repented? Have I repented? Have we repented of being the authority in our life, of insisting that, that we're the king of our life, that, that we're the one that's going to call the shots, that we actually know better than God how our life should go, that we know better than God who God is, that we know better than God who God should be. But I'm telling you, for those who have repented, who are in Christ, who have made Christ the supreme authority of their life, their Lord and Master. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And here's why there will be no condemnation on this last day. is because our judgment day already took place. Jesus, the judge of the world, came to the world not to condemn us but to take the condemnation that we all deserved. He literally climbed onto the altar where all of God's wrath for all sin, it came down on him. He bore our sin. He took our judgment day. And if you today think that you contend for God, you have no idea how much God first contends for you how he wages war for you, how he gives up everything just to get you, blood, sweat, and tears to win you, to redeem you, to heal you, to keep you. Are you kept? 
in Christ and for Christ are you kept in darkness. See, this is why when there's Cain and Balaam and Korah, when this stuff creeps in, and I'm not just talking about in our church, I'm talking about in our own hearts, in our own lives. The true church will always repent. And the true church will also always contend with blood, sweat, and tears for the true faith. 